when I was seven years old, the age of seven, there was one thing that stopped me, prevented me from experiencing one of the greatest water rides in all of Essex. Okay? One thing, and that was one inch and three centimeters. That's how much I needed to grow to reach the standard height to experience the jungle water rapid ride at Malden Leisure Center. Okay? Now, it doesn't matter how much I, I desired to be there, I dwelt upon it, I asked about it, people would talk about it, I would dream about it for many years. If I didn't reach that standard height, forget it. Now, I don't know if, if you're familiar with the Psalms. Um, King David, who wrote this psalm, uh, in many of the Psalms, he, he writes a lot about his desire to dwell in the presence of God. He meditates uh, and really wants to be in God's presence, uh, looking full frontal at his glory to experience all of what God is. But when it comes to this psalm, uh, the focus is uh, what is the actual moral standard for the one who desires to be there. Well, last week at the guest lunch, if you were here, Dan took us through Psalm 24. And the comparison between this psalm, Psalm 15, and the first part of Psalm 24, uh, in terms of its theme, are almost identical. When I was doing some research on the context of Psalm 15, one commentary suggested that King David could quite easily have been writing this at the point in biblical history when the ark, the portable dwelling place of God, was relocated to Jerusalem for the second time. The thing is, attending to the ark wasn't a trivial thing and really had great consequences. The tent in verse 1, meaning the temple in which the ark was kept, would in time be replaced by a building and not be moved. Well, have a look at verse 1. Verse 1 then asks two dimensions of the same question. And this is my paraphrase here. I've come up with this. It's, who may come and stand face to face in the presence of God, be at home and live. And in verse 2 to 5, we get our answer. King David writing God's response to the question. But it's verse 2. Verse 2, which really is the pivot point, because the weight of what all the other verses imply really only matter if this first one is in place. Now, it's not mentioned here in the psalm, but it's implied that to step into the presence of God requires a life of absolute perfection, both in what you've done and every motive that's ever driven you. Perfection, not just in behavior, but from the heart. Verse 2, it speaks, if you look at verse 2 again, it, it speaks truth from the heart, is written there. And again, Psalm 24 from last week, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So the heart, uh, the function room of all the choices and intentions that you have. And um, Mark 7, 21, Jesus tells us the state of our hearts. Uh, he says, Jesus says, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder. And uh, Woody Allen helps back that verse up when after being asked to explain some of his behavior, which turned into quite a bit of a public scandal some time back, he famously said that the heart wants what the heart wants. And if we look at our own lives, we can... You know, what, what we've thought, what we've done, maybe what we've said to people, can we really put the motivations of our hearts on par with that of verse 2? And the answer, of course, is no. But that's what God demands. So if that's the situation, then the reality is pretty hopeless. And the alternative of not living on the holy mountain would be a terrifying one. And yet, 
we know that centuries after this psalm was written, the God who demands what we read in verse 2 to 5 sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was absolutely blameless, to be put to death on the cross so that he may take the punishment we deserve for our sin. And so we're given a new heart, a perfection that isn't ours. God now sees us as perfect because he sees his son as one who's just like that in verse 2, whose walk is blameless, who speaks truth from the heart and does what is righteous. That's the reality. That's the situation now. Well, if you've been coming to the lunchtime service for the last few weeks or few months, you know that we've been going through the letter of the Ephesians. And uh, chapter 4 of that letter, verses 22 to 25, says this. It says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So we've been given Christ's perfection. But the demands of Psalm 15 don't become obsolete. And the who is question still stands. But Ephesians 1 verse 5 says this. It says, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. The gospel gives us a brand new identity. When we put our trust in Christ and receive the free gift of grace that's been poured out on us, we become children of God. So not only are we able to dwell in the presence of God, we are literally adopted into the eternal royal family of the creator of the universe. Um, Princess Charlotte, born a few weeks ago now, has done nothing to earn that title. Nothing. She can't even wipe her own bum. I mean, what she achieved for herself. But look what she has. Who she is purely because of the status of her mom and dad. The thing is, to prize that identity, that status of being a child of God, allows us to live out the demands of this psalm, but in a brand new way. It frees us up. And there are two common areas in pretty much every single industry and working environment in which this psalm directly relates to. And it's in the area of truth-telling and how we relate to each other. Have a look at the first line of verse 3. Whose tongue utters no slander. Okay, so on one end of the scale, you have the funds, uh, the, the funds that you're embezzling, and, and on the other end of the scale is the, the little twists of truth, the, the, the little changes that, you know, that you're showing to your boss, maybe the way the stats might look, or something like that. But the thing is, it's, it's those little twists that are the, the easiest things to do on a regular basis, aren't they? What we say, how we say it, and what we might miss out, and why do we do it? I think at the heart of it is because of how we want to be seen by others. We want to be seen as competent, efficient, good at our job. And that's okay until it means I have to change the facts because I really don't want you to see me in a bad light. I really don't. But the thing is, a gospel transfer of identity, truly knowing that I'm adopted, means that, yes, I want you to think well of me. I really do. But if you don't, ultimately it's not the end of the world. It allows us to be free to do the best job that we can possibly do and fail. 
The second thing is having a gospel identity changes how we relate to each other. Verse 3 again. Who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. Well, if I have an issue with you, I do not need to tear you down to push myself up. It means I do not need to bitch or gossip about you to make me be seen in that slightly more righteous light, regardless of how justified I think I am in doing it, but before I did. And verse 4, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord. Well, the basic principle here, the main question I want to put out is that what is your attitude to God? You either fear him or you don't. The one who fears him, regardless of his position, should be considered with honor. And the vile person in God's eyes, effectively, is anyone who does not fear him. And Spurgeon said this about this verse. He said, we may honor the roughest cabinet for the sake of the jewels, but we must not prize false gems because of their setting. A sinner in a gold chain and silicon robes is no more to be compared with a saint in rags. But then I want to push that a little bit further and ask the question, What is it that ultimately attracts you to an individual in your workplace? Who do you, or do you, potentially use maybe to get what you want? Um, I'm looking back at my own work experience and the different jobs I've had, and I can safely say that some bosses are never satisfied. Whatever you do, it's just never good enough, and they work you to the ground. But why do I do it? Because it looks so good on my CV, working for that director, that individual, maybe that manager, maybe if I can work with that CEO, just think of the contacts, the connections I might be able to make. I know he, she's a tyrant, but I'm sure I can gain something from being with them, just for a little while. And I'm certainly not saying anything about against ambition here, but I am suggesting what's the motivation behind it. The risk is that the time you spend with those individuals, you could start adopting the same ruthless practices you thought you would never do. The point is, The point is, is the company we spend time with can seriously shape our own character without even realizing it. Following that in verse 4, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Well, transparency. When it comes down to that crisis point at work, what do you do? Do you pull someone down to go up? Have you twisted the facts for so long that you're desensitized to the ability to be able to expose any failings? But then maybe you've had to. You've you've had no choice. Maybe you've had to do the things you do and say the things you've had to say because if you don't, you may lose your job and maybe you can't afford to lose your job. But the thing is, the second part of verse 4 urges us to have a transparency of mind. If we can never afford to lose our job or stick to a promise or deal or decision we've made because of driven by fear, then we'll never live with integrity in our job, especially if it means we need to twist things to stay there. And then verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent? Well, what is your attitude towards greed and generosity? And what is your attitude towards exploitation? Well, granted that the context of this verse is very much focused on finance and lending. You may be immediately drawn to the corruption of a court system or someone who owns property having that magic finger on who they've lent it to but this can also manifest itself in other ways as well. There are some people around you, if it's not you yourself, who are in situations where they can easily be taken advantage of, or for the result of someone else's gain. And I'm sure that looks different for each of us. But having a gospel identity rooted in being a child of God, it allows me to see those things, engage with those things in a completely different way. And there's a lot more 
that you can expand on that in application. But what I want to do is, is take you back to verse 1 again. Have a look at verse 1 of this psalm. The words, holy mountain, is used. And the holy mountain in the scripture is often connected to the title name of Zion. And Zion transitions in scripture of a physical place, Jerusalem, and a name for God's people to a spiritual heavenly city of God. In 1 Peter 2 verse 6, Jesus is referred to as the cornerstone of that heavenly Zion. And his people, those who trust in him, are being built up into a spiritual house from it. Isaiah 28 verse 16 says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. And what it's saying is, if you put your trust in that cornerstone, which is ultimately Jesus, you will never be shaken. Just like that in verse 5, you will never be stripped or shamed or blacklisted. You will be seen as someone who is transparent, someone who has integrity, ideally, theoretically. But of course, we all know it doesn't always work that way, does it? In fact, even as Christians, we still fall short despite our desire, best efforts to putting on that new self. Well, one thing we need to remember is that we have been rescued. And we've been given a firm footing on that holy mountain by the work of Christ, not our own. And it's that hope, that reality, that grace, the gospel, that we need to use as the engine and motivation for putting on the new self through the transformational power of the Holy Spirit. Look, if we're related to the one who is at Mount Zion, we can ultimately afford to lose out. Whether it's because we've had to admit to our faults or because of keeping to the consistency of the decisions we've had to make. The gospel gives us the permission to walk away because we have something far more precious And verse 5 of Psalm 15 will be true for us, that ultimately we won't be shaken. How do we know this? Because on the cross, Jesus was shaken for us so we don't have to be. He was the one, Isaiah 28, 16, stricken with panic when he was on the cross screaming because of the absence of his heavenly father. Jesus experiences the ultimate cosmic shaking so we could have eternal stability. If you're a Christian, claim that status, that you're a loved child of God, that that you are a member of that heavenly mountain. You're a citizen already on there. You're a stone part of Zion, laid upon the cornerstone of Christ Jesus that will never, ever, ever be shaken. Uh, Let me end there, and I'll pray. Father God, thank you for giving us uh, the perfection um, of your son. Uh, Thank you that we can stand and dwell in your presence because of Jesus' work on the cross. Forgive us when we lose sight of who we are in you. And do help us to put on that new self um, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.